You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, York Region. For more information, visit harvestyorkregion.ca. Wow, Revelation chapter 1. If you've got a copy of God's Word, I hope you do. And we're going to look at Revelation chapter 1, last book of the Bible, first chapter. We're going to begin in verse 9 this morning, Revelation chapter 1. Brenda and I are really, really glad to be here. It's been a great weekend, um, just a ministry in God's Word and being with you. We love what God's doing here. Don't, do you love what God's doing here? Isn't God doing a great thing? Let's go, yes. God's doing a great thing here. And uh, we're just thrilled to be here, and we're blessed that we can uh, be here ministering with you. And there's really nothing uh, more important to us than to come home every once in a while. So it's always great to be here, and thank you for that. Um, You all know what a fallacy is, right? Do you know what a fallacy is? A fallacy is a mistaken belief, especially one grounded on an unsound argument. Like, the camera never lies. That's a fallacy. Uh, I've had people take pictures of me and they do a little brush up, you know, put lights on the right way. And I actually look good when they do that. That's like amazing. And it's almost like they say, well, the camera never lies. Well, last time I checked the mirror, the camera lied. Or how about this? Parents do this. We do this in, in, in good natured way. But we tell our kids when they're really young, you can be anything you want to be. Right, And we do that because we want our kids to dream big dreams for themselves and reach for the stars. But everyone in this room knows that that's not true. You can't be anything that you want to be. Some of you dreamed when you were little kids that you would become an astronaut. Any astronauts here today? No astronauts here. Some of you professional athletes. uh, I don't know. When I was young, I wanted to be... be, uh, um, we called them garbage men when I was growing up. Like, uh, I'm not sure what we call, but that's, that's, what I want, that's what I wanted to be. And the reality is you can't be anything that you want to be. That's a fallacy. So is true in our spiritual lives. I, I, the, more, the more I am maturing in Jesus Christ, I'm realizing that there is a fallacy amongst the church wide, not, not sorry, this church, but church-wide, a fallacy that somehow teaches us that this abundant life that Jesus promises, and man, the life that Jesus promises is amazing. He calls it the abundant life, his life full of joy with him. But some people believe that this abundant life means it's the prosperous life, or the profitable life, or the healthy life, or the easy life. Come to Jesus and Everything, all your problems are solved and you'll never struggle ever again. You ever heard that before? That's a fallacy. Jesus said, take up your cross and what? Follow me. Now, taking up your cross and follow me is not an invitation to go to the beach and hang out with Jesus. Right? You're taking up your cross. That's a heavy weight. It's something that is a difficult thing that you have to experience. And so following Jesus is absolutely the best life. It's absolutely the most abundant life. But it is not always the easiest life. It's not. And so as it turns out, as we see here in Revelation chapter 1, beginning at verse 9 all the way through down to verse 20, as it turns out, when you actually follow Jesus, you're 
faithfulness to Jesus is challenged. Look at verse 9. I, John, okay, this is John. John, this is John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, that had a unique relationship with. John, the apostle John. He says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Okay, if you're going to underline anything in that verse or circle anything, these two words, in Jesus. Everything else revolves around these, in these verses, this phrase, in Jesus. That is, when you come to experience faith in Jesus and you have a personal relationship with Jesus, you are in Jesus Christ now. He says something unique happens. We become like brothers, John says. He's writing to these churches and he says, I'm your brother because we're in Jesus together. We're part of the same family. And he says, we're also partners. We're, we're kind of like co-workers. And then he tells us what we're partners in. Do you see the three words? Look at what he says. We are brothers and partners in the what? Tribulation and the, what's next? Kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. So when you come to follow Christ and, and when you come to realize what he has done for you on the cross and you give your life over to him and you're following, you're taking up your cross and you're following him, you are in Jesus, you get to experience three things. Tribulation, kingdom, patient endurance. Now, if I took a poll this morning and asked you, which one of the three do you want out of that list? I'm guessing you're picking number Two, kingdom, right? That sounds really cool. So I come, I'm, I'm part of, I'm in Jesus and I have this relationship with Jesus Christ. Now I'm part of his kingdom. Like that's, that's, that's amazing. That's great. He's where he's on his throne. He's in control. He's in charge of all the blessings of being part of his kingdom. You know, he's the king. We're interacting with one another. That's great. And that's one of these amazing blessings. And John says, yeah, when we're in Jesus, we're brothers, we're part of this family, we're partnering in being in Jesus' kingdom. That's exactly right. But you know what happens? When you're part of God's kingdom, when you're part of Jesus' kingdom, you also get to experience a couple other things. And he says, you also are going to experience tribulation, or the word there means suffering. You're going to experience suffering. So while you're part of God's kingdom, while you're part of Jesus' kingdom, you're also going to experience suffering, tribulation, pain. Last time I checked, not many people sign up for that. But many of you here know that that's true. You're in Jesus. You experience being part of his kingdom. You're also going to experience suffering and tribu tribulation. And that leads to the need to experience patient endurance. To bear up under the load, under the weight of life, to keep going through this. Now, John describes what that looks like for his life. Did you notice what that looked like for his life? He says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation of the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, I was on the island called Patmos. He's on an island called Patmos. Now, this is not a vacation destination, right? He's not gone. He's not gotten on a cruise ship to go to an all-inclusive resort, right? That's, that's not what that is. The island of Patmos is just this little island where the Roman government used to send their 
prisoners. They would exile them to the island of Patmos. You know what they did on the island of Patmos? They moved rocks. They, while they were awaiting their exile, whether, while they were waiting to see what the Roman government was going to do for them, usually it would end up in death. They would move rocks for a living. One day they would pile the rocks up here. The next day they'd move the pile over here. The next day they'd move it back somewhere else. And this is what John is doing. John has experienced this. And he's writing to a group of churches, seven churches, that are experiencing some of the same persecution that he is. They're either in it or they're about to experience it. Now, now, why is this happening? Why is this happening? Why are they part of the kingdom? Why are they suffering? Why are they having to patiently endure? Well, look at what he says. He says, I'm on the island of Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Do you know why he ended up on the island of Patmos? Because he was being faithful to what God had called him to do. What did God call the apostle John to do? The messenger called John to do? He had called him to preach the word of God and to tell people about Jesus Christ. And for that, he gets exiled to the island of Patmos. He's still in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. He's suffering, patiently enduring, awaiting his death. All he was doing was what God asked him to do. Because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, he faces persecution and suffering. And um, that happens. And the reason why it happens is because we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities of the powers of this air. And this plays itself out in so many different ways around the world. Like in countries today where worldviews and truth collides, some, like the Apostle John, face death because they are being faithful to Jesus. We do not need to see any more pictures of, people, of ISIS warriors and men in orange jumpsuits anymore. Do we need to see any more pictures to know that this is true? That people who claim the name of Jesus Christ are dying because of the, te the testimony of Jesus. There are people right now, there are people right now around this world who are facing this kind of persecution, this kind of trial. We do not need any more, is, is this true? Is this not true? It's true, it's true. Because around the world, in other countries, there are these, there are these truth claims and worldviews that are colliding with one another and it's leading, it's leading to people suffering like John had suffered. Now, in our country, that's not the case, at least not yet. But we do live in a country that celebrates civility over conviction, do we not? And we live in a country that promotes tolerance over truth. Is that true? It's true. Where the agenda of the other or the agenda of the individual is more important than God's agenda. Do you think that's true in our country? Well, if that's true, there will always be a growing antagonism to the authority of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Because Jesus said in John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Do not let it surprise you, follower of Jesus Christ, 
that even though we live in a, a country where persecution is not open and rampant, that there is a growing antagonism towards the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. We are part of his kingdom, and yet as part of his kingdom, we experience suffering, and we experience patient endurance. And so in a world where truth claims collide, and in a world that is full of the consequences of sin, where health tests come back, and they're not always good results, where there are, re- there are relationships with one another, are tense, where parents sometimes have tense relationships with their children and husbands and wives, when we're not always fulfilled in the workplace. When, with all these things that God loves to use, these experiences that happen in our lives that God loves to use to strengthen and prove and test our faith, the evil one, Satan himself, attempts to use the exact same things to tear down our faith, to doubt the word of God and doubt the testimony of Jesus. See, when you follow Jesus, your faithfulness to him is challenged. And note this, this is really, really important. When your faith is challenged, where Jesus is and who he is, is what really matters. Now look at what happens here in this story, beginning to read at verse 10. It says in verse 10, I was in the spirit. This is John speaking. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. Now, when your faith is being challenged, where Jesus is and who Jesus is really matters. So you have to possess an unwavering certainty of where Jesus is. You have to, that you, you've got to lock in on this. You have to possess an unwavering certainty of where Jesus is. Now they say a picture is worth how many words? A thousand words, which is one way of saying like a lot of words, like a lot of words, a picture is. And so this, I find this fascinating that in the midst of, of his persecution and suffering, John is there on the island of Patmos and what does God give him? He gives him a picture. Right? He gives him a vision. He says, you know, I was on the, I was, it was the Lord's day and I was in the spirit. You know, I, I had this vision that was given to me by God. I got this, I got this picture and this picture is kind of, it's kind of a little weird, isn't it? It's a little strange, lampstands and all that kind of stuff. Well, that's what happens in visions. You get like, sometimes they're not, they're kind of not all that clear. But it's interesting, these ideas of these seven lampstands, it comes right out of the Old Testament from the book of Zechariah, the fourth chapter Verses two through nine. In the temple, right, in the temple of the Old Testament, there were these lampstands, and the lampstands would be lit, and when they were lit, it would signify the presence of God in the temple. And so here you have him, he's got he's having this vision of these seven lampstands, and 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 uh, in the middle of these seven lampstands is one like a son of man. Where is Jesus in this picture? 
He's in the middle of the lampstands. You say, well, what are the lampstands all about? Well, look at verse 20. Look at chapter 1, verse 20. It tells us what the lampstands are. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels or the messengers of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the what? Seven churches. He's written this book to these seven churches. So, oh, now, now it's starting to make sense. So it's starting to clear up a little bit. You've got this idea where you have these seven lampstands, and each one of these lampstands with their, with their, their lampstand lit, okay, they represent the churches and their testimony of Jesus Christ. They're undergoing persecution. They're undergoing persecution. And in the middle of them, in the middle of them experiencing the persecution stands one who is like a son of man. Tell me, where is Jesus in this picture? He's where? Come on, church, where is he? He's in the what? He's in the middle. Jesus is in the middle. Right? When your faith is being challenged, the one thing that you have to grab onto, that you have to possess with great certainty, is where Jesus is. He is right in the middle. He's not beyond the churches. He's not just above the churches. He's not outside looking in on the churches. Where is he? Where is he? He's where? He's in the middle. Wow. In the midst of their persecution and their challenge, he's right in the middle looking at it all. He's experienced it all with them. Brenda and I have two children. We have uh, um, a, a son, John, our oldest boy, John. Trying to, that's right, right? His name is John. <laughs> and um, he and his wife, Julie, live in Louisville. And uh, we don't see them as much as we'd like to. Uh, maybe we will soon in the future, but um, they're down there. And then we have a daughter, Christine, and she's married to Joe, and they live in Orangeville. And um, our kids are great. They're just absolutely amazing. Uh, they love us. They love the Lord. They're living for the Lord. Um, you know, that's a, isn't that a great parents to think that, that it can work out? I mean, sometimes you kind of wonder, right? Like, how are your kids going to work? How is it going to all work out? Well, our, in our case, it's worked out so far just really, really great. God's just blessed us with that. But, you know, five years ago, our family was... Um, it wasn't going well. And um, Brenda and I, I was pastoring a church just north of Toronto, and I'd been doing that for a number of years. We were just doing what God had asked us to do, trying to be faithful and shepherding God's people there, uh, trying to minister as effectively as we can. And we found ourselves one day taking our daughter, our 20, just, a, you know, just over the age of 20, we were taking her into our car. We were driving her down to downtown Toronto, to Toronto Western Hospital, to admit her into the hospital because she had an eating disorder, and it got so bad over the course of a couple of years. It had gotten so bad that we, there was literally nothing left that we could do. Nothing. Um, it's interesting what I remember, what I remember about the experience. I remember a lot of the admission process when we admitted her into the hospital. And um, we went into this room that, was, um, that had ceiling tiles that were falling down and that had cables running all over the place. There was no natural light in the room. All there was were those, you know, the yellowing old fluorescent light tubes 
you know, kind of a kind of idea, and it just it just screamed welcome to our hospital, you know, kind of idea, like thank you. And I remember that I can I can remember that so vividly, and I remember when they the, I remember the moment they put the admission bracelet on my daughter's wrist, and I remember the long what seemed like a long elevator ride upstairs to the ward that she was going to be on. And it's like yesterday, I can, I can hear the door clicking behind us as we left her. We, we, I left my baby girl with people I didn't even know. I remember the ride down the stairs. I remember being outside of that hospital. I remember the tears that we cried. I remember the pain that we felt. I remember, I remember all the exhausting questions that I asked of God over months a time, just all the time, going back to the hospital, back and forth, asking God the same set of questions, the same set of questions. God, what are you doing? Jesus was in the middle. He was in the middle. And there are times in our lives when it's hard to think that. It's even really hard to believe that to be true, that Jesus actually is in the middle. And when that happens, we have to confront the lies that are flipping through our minds and our hearts. And I want you to write these three lies down because if you haven't confronted these yet, you're going to confront them. So when, you are, when your faith is being challenged in the midst of circumstances like that, there are lies that come flying through your head. Here's the first one. It's this one. Okay, the first lie is this. God, it's abandoned me. God, you've abandoned me. God is not, he is not an absentee parent that abandons his children. Joshua chapter 1 verse 5, I will be with you, I will be with you, I will not leave you or forsake you. But that's one of the big lies, you know, when you're in the midst of that, you think, well, God, you've just abandoned me, you left me here alone. No, 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 Joshua 1.5, I will be with you, I will not leave you or forsake you. Or how about the second one? Well, God, God's distant from me. He's way out up there somewhere. He's far away from me. And it, man, can it feel like that? When you're in the midst of this, it feels like that sometimes. It feels like our prayers are bouncing off the ceilings and coming right back to us, is it not? That's exactly what it feels like. But listen, listen, God is not like the general in the army back at headquarters working out the plan while you're on the front line. Joshua 1.9, the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Or how about this lie? God's hiding from me. He's hiding from me. Psalm 46.1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. <laughs> Underline that in your mind. A very, very present help in trouble. He is our refuge and our strength. So tell me, where's Jesus? Let's try that again. Where's Jesus? He's in the middle. Jesus is, is in the middle. He's right here. He's right now. He's in the middle of your darkest moment, your 
biggest struggle, your most challenging circumstance. He is right in the middle. And when your faith is challenged, you have got to possess this. You have to, you've got to grab onto this. You have to know where Jesus is. And then also you have to know who Jesus is. You have to possess an unwavering certainty of where he is, but then you've got to practice an undivided confidence in who he is. It's one thing to say, I know Jesus is in the middle. It's another thing to trust in who he is while he is in the middle. And that's the big shift. Some of you here would say, yes, I believe that Jesus is with me, but what's he like while he's with you? Who is he while he's in the middle? What's he like? Well, look at verses 13 through 18. Let me read these to you. Just follow along and just, let God's word just kind of wash over you this morning. And in the midst of the lampstands, verse 13, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and hates. There's these three amazing titles that are attributed to Jesus Christ while he's in the middle. The first one is this. When he's in the middle, he is the king. One like a son of man, he says. One like a son of man in verse 13. That's right out of Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, when the Ancient of Days gives the Son of Man all authority over all kingdoms. All right, so just, just stop right there. Like, don't go any further in your mind. Just stop right there. His title is One Like a Son of Man, and that is the picture of all authority be given to him over all the kingdoms of the earth. And that's exactly what he is like with you in the midst of your trials and your tribulations. He is the sovereign king. And he's dressed for the part. Okay, you see what it says in verse, in verse 13. He's clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. He wears these sovereign clothes. He has this king's robe. He's dressed like a ruler. He's sovereign in this picture. He's wise in verse 14. You see what it says in verse 14? The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. That's a picture of wisdom, pure wisdom. He knows everything. Nothing catches him off guard. Nothing catches Jesus off guard. He's the discerning king in verse 14. It says his eyes are like a flame of fire. They're purifying. They're penetrating. He looks through everything. He sees all the junk. He burns it away. He's the strong and steady king in verse 15. His feet are burnished bronze. They've been refined in a furnace. He's strong. He's firm. He's steady. His strength has been tested. Where did it get tested? On the cross. 
It was tested on the cross. It's been refined. He's strong. He's steady king. He's the powerful king in verse 15. His voice is like the roar of many waters. How many have you been on the maid of the mist? Oh, not as many in this, in this, uh, in this, uh, this time slot. I've never been on the maid of the mist. I can never afford to go on the maid of the mist. So I just wanted to see who could actually afford to go on the maid of the mist. But if you took the ride, the maid of the mist, and they actually stopped at the foot of the horseshoe falls and they stayed there for a while, it would be really, I'm just guessing, it would be really hard to have a conversation with somebody. You say, well, why would it be hard to have a conversation with somebody? Well, but like, duh, there's all this water coming over, over like all this water. And when this water's coming down, it's pounding down. It's pounding down, pounding down loud. You can't hear anything but the water. That's what Jesus' voice is like. While he's in the middle, by the way, it's loud. When he speaks, when he speaks, not, there's nothing else that can be heard. He has this powerful, strong voice. When he speaks, guess what happens? The universe happens. That's what his voice is like. He's like this, this powerful king. He's in verse 16. He's a king who's in control. In his right hand, he holds these seven stars. They're the messengers to the churches. I think this picture just, it just depicts this. He's got, he's got everything in his hands. Right? We used to sing when I was younger, he's got the whole world in his hands. He's got my life in his hands. He's got your life in his hands. He's, he's in control. He's in absolute control. He's a king that judges, verse 16. Out from his mouth comes this sharp, two-edged sword. His words cut through everything. He judges with his words. His words are cutting. They cut through any resistance. They divide good from evil. They overcome any kind of rebellion. And then he says this in verse 16. He is the strong and brilliant king. His face is like the sun at full strength. That's the noonday sun. You don't look very long at the noonday sun. Why? Because it's just, it's too bright. Now, this is what he's like while he's in the middle. He's the king. Don't miss this. But look at verse 17. It says that he's also the eternal one. He says, I am the first and the last, it says. He's the one who was, who is, who will be. He is the eternal one. He's the eternal creator. He's the eternal one who's sovereign over all of human history and has true for your own life as well. And then he says this in verse 18, that he's also the victorious one. Because he says, I am the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore. He died. Why did he die? Well, just look at verse 5 of this same chapter, Revelation chapter 1. It says, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. So here he is. He's the living one who died. He's the living one. He's the eternal one who died. Why did he do that? So that you and I could experience forgiveness, forgiveness for our sins. So that we could enjoy relationship with God now and forever. That's what Jesus meant. He said, I am the way. 
right? It's, it's about me. It's about what I have done, not what you do, not what you think you could do, not your ability, not your effort. It's all about what I have done for you. I am the living one who laid down his life for you. But he says, behold, I'm alive forevermore. Wow, he was in the grave for how many days? Three days. And then he burst out with this massive wow power. Right? Resurrected over the dead. Death has its hold on him for a few days. And then boom, he's alive forevermore. Alive forevermore. Alive forevermore. He has victory, victory over death. He's the firstborn of the dead. And because of that, he holds the keys. He's in control of whoever gets locked up and whoever gets liberated. And I'm telling you, there's nothing that excites me more than this about my own life this morning as this truth is this, that the grace of God has liberated me. I mean, I have been forgiven of my sins because of what Jesus Christ has done for me. And if you're here this morning and you have not experienced the forgiveness of God through Jesus Christ, maybe you're trying to experience forgiveness from God because of what you're able to do versus what Christ has done for you. Man, if, if that's you, I'm just telling you, Jesus is the, he's the one who holds the keys. And you have to come to him and believe in what he has done for you in faith Express faith to him, and then you can experience liberation from the power of sin. Man, that's like, that's amazing. Absolutely amazing. And I, 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 you know, this is what he's like while he's in the middle. He's the eternal, victorious king. I just can't imagine, I can't imagine facing the struggles of faith and life without a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That's the good news. The good news is that Jesus died for us so that we can enjoy this kind of relationship with him. We are never alone. Never alone. No matter how dark it gets, no matter how difficult it gets, no matter how drastic it gets, no matter how chaotic it gets, you if you know Christ, are never alone. He can be as close to you as your own heartbeat or breath. And yet, some of us, some of us are still trying to deal with the challenges of life on our own, in our own strength, from our own ways. And I, I'm just telling you, look, this is, the, this is the, ta- the invitation that's given to you today, is this that Jesus Christ wants to be in the middle with you as you experience all of life's chaos and challenges and difficulty and pressures. As, as you're going through it, he wants to be in the middle. And he, if he is in the middle with you, if you respond to his invitation through faith, he will be in the middle with you and he will be the eternal victorious king while he's in the middle with you. And so to the parent who is struggling with a wayward child. Where's Jesus? He's in the middle. And to those of you husbands and wives who are feeling alone in your marriage today. 
Where is he? He's in the middle. And to the student who desperately just wants to fit in, you just like you do anything to kind of fit in and you're just feeling alone, feeling shunned by other people. I'm telling you, you are not alone. Jesus is in, he is, he's in the middle. And to those who are suffering great loss, Jesus is in the middle. I can, you know, we have brothers and sisters in Nepal today who started their day off yesterday where everything was as, they, as it should be and as it always has been. And in one moment, they lost everything. Homes, brothers, sisters, parents, cousins, friends, work. Today, I can only imagine in the midst of the chaos, some of them are just wandering through the streets. There's aftershock after aftershock after aftershock dealing with that like ongoing loss and I'm thinking about that I think about this this promise that God gives you know even in the midst of even in the midst of all of that as our brothers and sisters walk through the streets as they're facing this chaos and these challenges you know you know what I believe I believe this with everything in my heart Jesus is right there in the middle with them and he is still the eternal victorious king He's in the middle. He is greater. There is nothing, there is no trouble that is greater than him. He has a plan. We don't always understand what that plan is, but he's in control of that plan. He will judge. He does vindicate the injustices of this world. And he is enough. He is enough. Where he is and who he is is what matters. That's what matters. William Borden was a, um, a missionary to Asia in the early 1900s. When some of you around my age bracket, you might remember the Borden family name. The Bordens were like they were like they were rich and like they had a lot of cash, owned a lot of companies. And when he was 16, when he graduated from high school, his parents in 1906 gave him a trip around the world. Okay, so that's how much, I can only imagine, that must have cost a lot of money to go around the world in 1906. And as he's traveling around by ship and by boat around the world in 1906, he gained this passion for Asia. God began to stir in his heart. He saw the people of Asia and he got this, this challenge. He wanted, to, he wanted to take the gospel message to them. And so he comes home from his, his year-round boat ride. He comes back and he's when he gets off the boat, he tells his friends, and he's expecting his friends to embrace him, but instead what they do is they, they ridicule him. They're going, dude, you're a Borden. Man, boy, you're not going to throw everything away to go there, are you? And he, so he took out his Bible and he wrote these two words. No reserves or no reservations. After he finished that trip around the world, he enrolled at Yale and he went did his undergrad degree in Yale. You can imagine being a Borden at, at the graduation time. He was offered numerous jobs. He had all these other opportunities. He could have ran any company. He could have stayed in his dad's company. He could have done anything that he wanted to do. And every single job that he, was get, that he had offered to him, he turned them down. And he wrote these words in the back of his Bible. He wrote these words, no retreats. He went off to Princeton Seminary and did his 
a master's degree in theology there in the early 1900s. Upon graduating that, he got onto a ship and he went over to Egypt because he had narrowed his focus now to, uh, to um, Muslim people in a certain section in China. And so he stopped in Egypt to learn Arabic so that he could best minister to them. While he was there in Egypt at the age of 25, he contracted a disease. And within one month of diagnosis, he died at the age of 25. Now, I, you know, lots of questions could be flowing through your head. Now, one of the questions when I first heard this story is, God, like, um, was there like a plan B here? When they brought his body back home and they went through all of his personal effects, his parents found his Bible and they opened up his Bible and they found these words written in the back of his Bible. No reservations, no reserves. No retreats. And then he wrote these final two words. After he had learned that he had had this disease and he was facing death, he wrote these last two words. No regrets. You can't write those words unless you know that Jesus is in the middle and that he's the eternal victorious king. I hope you can trust him to be that for your life today. Let's pray together. Father, I just, I ask, we ask together for grace to extend all across this auditorium now. There are, there are many people, many people here uh, this afternoon who are probably going through significant challenges and trials in their lives and uh, they so desperately need to be able to trust you that you are the one who is in the middle and that you are the eternal victorious king. Please, Father, give them the grace to be able to believe that, to be able to trust in you like that. We do think about our brothers and sisters around the world. I think of those who are facing death today because they are they're proclaiming the testimony of Jesus. Father, help them to finish to the end, to be strong, to know that you are in the midst, you're in the middle. You are still the eternal victorious king. Think of our brothers and sisters in Nepal who are wandering the streets today, wondering what is next. May they know, may they believe with great confidence and certainty that Jesus is right there in the middle. May the church there know that they have this amazing message of good news and comfort to proclaim to people in the midst of despair. You are in the middle. You are the eternal victorious king. So we today, from our hearts, we proclaim this to be true. We believe. We believe in you. You're in the middle. You are the eternal victorious king. Yes, you are. And for his fame and for his glory, in Jesus' name, amen.